This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading for this evening comes from John chapter 15. John 15, we will begin at verse 12 and continue through verse 27. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things I will do to you for my name's sake, or they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause." But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that By your spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive it. We would receive this instruction on how we are to love one another, and that that may be grounded in the love you have for us, the love of the gospel that you have given your son to make atonement for our sins and to reconcile us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often see... In popular stories, it can be books or shows or movies or anything at the like that often 
in stories that depict wars, that depict battles, depict conflicts, there's a decisive battle at the end of the story where all the good guys in the story have been building and working and preparing to go and finally face the enemy and defeat them and win for the cause of good. At least that's how stories used to be told. Often in our day, they like to make bad things look good and evil grayer and have anti-heroes and the bad guys getting away with things. But I'm thinking of a final battle where it's clearly the good guys and they're fighting against evil. Oftentimes in these kinds of stories, there will be the speech from the general or the king, from the hero of the story to prepare them for the final struggle. It's not just in stories, this has happened in real life, it's happened in history. You could think, for instance, of Winston Churchill's famous speech of, we shall fight them on the beaches, preparing Britain to retake Europe in World War II, or Patrick Henry's, give me liberty or give me death. Well, the Christian life is not a typical battle. It doesn't involve storming the beaches or throwing off dictators or anything of the sort, usually. But it is a battle. It is a warfare fought under the banner of a king. A few weeks back, we looked at Psalm 2 and how Jesus is the king to whom all other kings owe their allegiances. At VBS or in Sunday school, we sing the song, I'm in the Lord's army. Or this morning we sang, Onward Christian Soldiers. These things are true. We are in a battle. Christ is our king. He is our general. We make spiritual warfare against the world and the flesh and the devil. When Jesus' upper room discourse, these last hours he will spend with his disciples before his arrest, he is preparing his disciples for a battle that is to come. He will actually leave them. He will go and be captured and killed within a day. He will live again, but then he will ascend into heaven. It will be in the hands of these men with him to carry forth the banner to build the spiritual kingdom of the church. Our text tonight continues Jesus' preparations of his disciples for this coming reality. How are they to go into battle? How will they fight? How will they need to be prepared? In our text tonight, we see Jesus' words to prepare his disciples for the coming battle. It's not a typical battle, as I said, but very much a real battle all the same. So first, he instructs them concerning friendship in verses 12 through 17. Jesus gives instructions for how those who are on his side, how they ought to relate to one another. And second, we see foes in verses 18 through 25. Jesus gives instructions concerning the kind of opposition that his people will face and why. And then third, we see a filling in verses 26 and 27. After Jesus departs, his people will receive additional help. So again, we have friendship, foes, and filling. First, we see friendship in verses 12 through 17. We pick up after Jesus' teaching last week concerning how he is the vine and his people are the branches on that vine. He is the source of life that nourishes and feeds his people, though he also prunes them 
and he cuts off and removes those unproductive branches that have no life in them. This teaching follows that by giving instructions as to what believers ought to do in light of these spiritual realities and the life that they do have. Jesus said, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now remember how Jesus has just described his own love in verse 9. It is the same sort of love that the Father has for him. Perfect, inseparable, unconditional, unfailing love. And that same kind of love that the Father has for the Son is the love that Christ has for his people. But it is not only a theoretical intra-Trinitarian love that only God truly knows. We see the analogy of this love and what Christ does for us and how he describes it in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus does not speak of this as one who does not know what it entails. He, being God, knows all, but he, being man, is about to undergo this very thing for his people. He is going to die so that they might live. And this is the greatest expression of love. Think about it. What is more loving, what is more heroic than dying so that another might live? You might know of a case where this has happened, or at least cases where someone was willing to do that and took steps towards doing that even if it didn't turn out that way. I remember a few years ago a situation in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where we used to live. There was a young boy, I think he was six years old at the time, was with his smaller, younger sister, and they were attacked by a dog. The boy got in the way of the dog to protect his sister, and he was mauled severely. He didn't die, but he had to undergo a lot of medical procedures and stuff following, but he was willing to go that far to protect his sister if he needed to. He showed the kind of care and concern and resolve for his sister, even at his young age, that he was willing to die if that's what it took. There are many cases where brave souls have laid down their lives to save others. I mentioned before times of war. I mentioned some speeches from World War II and the American Revolution, and in both of those conflicts, many did die for their cause, for their country. We see other stories where people go to great and daring lengths to even suffer and die to protect and save others. There is no greater love than this because it is completely selfless love. Some might do acts of bravery and courage for glory, for attention, for fame. But a love that would die for another forfeits even a right to those things. If you die, you won't be here to hear them chant your name and to see yourself in the headlines and read the books and watch the movies they'll make about you. The truest and purest love is the kind that will suffer unto death. And that is the love that Christ has shown for his people. But it's not just that. It's a love that also includes friendship. And this is what Jesus describes in verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. 
Now, this challenge is what we may often be inclined to think about when we think about keeping God's commands. Too often we think of keeping God's commands, keeping his laws as a burden, something foreign to us that we don't desire to do, but we do because we have to. This problem can be exacerbated by the fact that we don't ever keep his commands perfectly. It can be frustrating and demoralizing and discouraging. This is why antinomianism is so rampant in our days. People concoct all kinds of schemes and reasons and theological errors all in the name of mitigating and removing the obligations we have to keep God's commands. But Jesus talks about heeding his commands as a sign of friendship with him. You don't keep Jesus' commands because he is a brutal taskmaster whom you seek to appease. He's not a slave driver with a whip or a boss that's going to cut your pay if you do anything wrong. No, Jesus makes that difference in relational status clear in verse 15. His disciples he no longer regards as servants that serve him out of mere obligation and responsibility. Servants don't have access to the inner workings and knowledge of their masters. Servants often have to do things, but don't get to know why. If you've had a job where you've had a manager, it can be easy to despise and resent your manager for not doing things the way you want. And maybe your way is better, but maybe there's things you don't know. Reasons why things must be the way they are. Jesus is not merely a master or a manager. He is a friend. He lets his people know who he truly is and what he does and why, at least insofar as it is for our good. The upper room discourse is a fine example of this. All throughout it, we see Jesus revealing some of the deepest and most profound truths of his person and work. And at long last, in ways that are plain and clear and understandable to us and to his disciples. And this is what he says at the end of verse 15. All things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. In other words, all the things that were given, that were decreed by the Father to be revealed, have now been revealed. All the things that are to be written down and recorded for believers throughout all generations are here. Jesus has made himself plain and clear to his people, who are his friends. And Jesus is the best kind of friend, the friend that was willing and did lay down his life for his friends. A friend like that is precious, and Jesus is the friend more precious than any other. And this affects how we should approach his commands. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus makes this clear in what he says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. God is sovereign in salvation, and in Christ he has chosen his people from out of fallen sinful humanity. Now, this is devastating to our Arminian friends, those who believe that we choose Jesus out of our own free will, that basically we decide that he's our friend, that basically Jesus just lays out all the goods before us and we decide if we're going to buy them or not. 
The Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. On our own, we are enemies. We are estranged. As we just saw in our text last week, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Jesus has to change us. He has to turn us to himself. He has to revive and resurrect us. He chooses us. We don't choose him. And he did. He appointed his people to salvation. He appointed us to everlasting hope and everlasting life. And that is a great and glorious thing. But he did not appoint us just for that. He appointed us, consistent with what he said last time about the branches on the vine, to bear fruit. We are appointed to do what is pleasing to him, to keep his commands, to love and to serve others. And our fruit shall remain. We remain and abide in him all our lives if we are truly united to him. And the fruit that is born for Christ's kingdom lasts forever. It is so as we are sanctified, we are more and more conformed into the image of Christ and fitted for heaven until we finally arrive at its door. We also labor to see others brought to salvation through Christ's appointed means of proclaiming the gospel so that others come into this eternal life. And we see here that whatever we ask the Father in Jesus' name, that is, whatever we ask is in accord with his will and purposes, he gives to us. God will give his children what they need to accomplish his purposes. Again, not a blank check for health and wealth and prosperity. But as our wills are conformed to God's will and our purposes conform to God's purposes, we will ask for the things that are good and the things that he desires us to have, and he will give them to us for our good and for his glory. Jesus' book ends this section on friendship, restating the great commandments. Love one another. But not all that comes will be representative of or reciprocal of that love, and that brings us to our second point. After friendship, we come to foes in verses 18 through 25. Not everyone is ready to receive or return the love of Christ. Jesus makes this clear in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. To, those, to these disciples who were there with him that night, this would have been something obvious. They've been with Jesus as he has faced much resistance and opposition. We've observed this even as we've gone through the book of John. How often do the scribes and the Pharisees and others oppose and criticize Jesus? He represents a threat to them, a threat to the status quo, a threat to the way things are and the way people want them to be. The most offensive aspect of the love of Christ is something that I've said already. It is a love grounded in law, a love that is according to the commands, according to the absolute moral standards that God has set forth. So one could imagine the kind of hatred and resistance that could arise when a society departs from such standards of morality and embraces relativism and chaos and an ethic where nothing really matters. We don't have to imagine this. This is very much the situation in which we live in our day. 
The world hates us because it hates Jesus, because Jesus is God, and his character and his ethic is that of God. People are fine with the Jesus, who is just a nice guy who taught nice things, but they have no place in their hearts for a Jesus who says things like, no one comes to the Father except through me, or go and sin no more. That Jesus is too limiting, too exclusive for the tastes of our day. But that's the real Jesus, the Jesus who is, the Jesus who saves. And because the world hates Jesus, it hates those who belong to him. In verse 19, Jesus says that if his disciples were of the world, the world would love its own. The world loves worldliness and it loves worldly people. He continues to explain that if the world hates him, the master, they will hate the servants of the master. If they persecuted Jesus, who was perfect, righteous, just, holy, and loving beyond any other person who ever lived, we should expect no less laboring in his service. This challenges a lot of what Christians think today about their relationship with the world. The last 50 years or so, there have been some major shifts in American Christianity towards being seeker-sensitive. That is, if we just make the church appeal enough to what people want, to their sensitivities, they'll like us and they'll want to join us. So we'll change how we worship. We'll change the content of our teaching and our doctrine to try to appease an unbelieving world. More recently, we see this in how many Christians try to emphasize being winsome, which is often just a cover for more of trying to appease the world, appease the culture, give the world what it wants so it will like us. One of the major vehicles for this is the therapeutic. A pastor friend of mine in Wyoming, his name is Matt Powell, he posted something this week about Therapeutic antinomianism, I think he nailed this down very well. He said that's where you never talk about sin, never talk about culpability or responsibility, especially when talking about the sins of whoever your favorite constituency is. Instead, it's all brokenness, trauma, mental illness, etc. Your target audience is never responsible for their wrong actions, Instead, it's always the fault of someone else, someone who hurt them. Bad parents, abusive men, tyrannical church leaders or the like, or genetics, or medical conditions, etc. End quote. All of this sort of talk is an attempt to appease the world, to try to make it hate us less. But the world doesn't hate us because we are wrong and need to adjust. The world hates us because of the core and content of our message, which is Christ himself. We are not in some neutral or charitable disputation with the world. We are at war with the world. If the world hates Jesus, we're not going to fare any better. We're not going to outwin some or out nice or out impress Jesus. But our weapon in this war is the word. Jesus says in verse 20, 
If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, as God is sovereign and has chosen some for faith and salvation, some will hear the word and believe and keep it and abide in it. But it's in God's hands, not ours. Some hear the word and it is judgment to them. It enrages them and it motivates them to persecute that word and those who bring it and to persecute Christ and those who come in his name. Because they hate Jesus and they hate the Father who sent him, they hate his words and they hate his people. They do this to their own judgment and condemnation. They hear this word and they sin because they do not believe. This hatred of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament, which Jesus mentions in verse 25. He quotes a line that actually appears with variation in a few different psalms, like Psalm 35, verses 19 through 21. It says, Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters. Against the quiet ones in the land, they also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Those were David's words, but David's greater son is the ultimate fulfillment of them. No one was hated more despite having less cause to be hated than Jesus. For all the good he did, David was a sinner. In some cases, he suffered because of his own sin. But Jesus never sinned. He was hated and he suffered for no other reason than the sheer hatred and opposition that the world and its people had for him and for the Father who sent him. So we recognize that the world hates us because it hates Christ. What help will we have against this hatred? This brings us to our final point. After friendship and foes, we come to filling in verses 26 and 27. This is a review of something that has already been said in this discourse. Christ will send the Holy Spirit to help and comfort believers as they face the world's opposition. In verse 26, Jesus says that the Helper will testify of him. This means that the Spirit will make the word effectual, both for the salvation of sinners and for the sanctification of God's people. We are at war with the world. The world is enemies of Christ and his church. And on its own, that is exactly where it will stay. But God does a supernatural and miraculous act by the Holy Spirit in that some of these enemies are raised from death to life, from sin to salvation, from enmity to friendship. And the Spirit testifies to their spirits that they are children of God. Their hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. And these apostles who were gathered that night, they would be the first empowered by the Holy Spirit to testify of Christ to the world. And though it will come in the face of much persecution and opposition, the Spirit's power will save people from their sins and deliver them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and life. 
That first day at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 came to faith in Christ. Millions, billions since then all over the world, across all different times and cultures and nations, have been brought in by the Spirit's power. Enemies are made friends. Hostiles are reconciled to God. It is God's doing and God's power, and he and he alone receives the glory. Our task, our responsibility, is to do what he has called us to do. For some, this is to proclaim the word. For others, it is to sit under and support its proclamation wherever the work is done. For all of us, it is a call to live lives of faithfulness and love and service insofar as it depends on us, to trust God even in difficulty and opposition and persecution, to partake of God's appointed means whereby he strengthens and teaches and grows us. There may be dark days ahead. There may be dark days now. But God is with us and for us. He has called us friend and he enables us and strengthens us, and he meets with us by his word and his spirit, so that even as we fight, we love. Even as we struggle, we praise and we worship. Even as we suffer, we show forth the gospel. These words of comfort to Jesus' disciples are words of comfort and hope to us. And we hold fast to this hope, and shine it forth in the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words that you've given us, these words of comfort that we can know that even as we face the enmity and opposition of the world, that your Son, Jesus Christ, has called us friends. He has given us his Holy Spirit by which we can be strengthened and encouraged and empowered to finish the work that you have given us to do. I pray that we would hold fast to this hope even as we face dark days now and may face more in the future. I pray that you would, uh, even despite these trials and oppositions, strengthen and encourage your people and bring more in, bring them to salvation that only comes in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.